Welcome to the Medicine Grand Rounders podcast. My name is Dick Wardrop, and I'm a MedPeds clinician educator, program director, and hospitalist at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. We are so proud to host another great episode of our podcast, cleverly titled, Give You All That You May Expect Out of a High-Quality, Evidence-Based Medicine Grant Rounds, right at your fingertips and right in your ears. Our program is funded by a grant from the Cleveland Clinic Education Institute, but the views expressed herein are not necessarily the views of Cleveland Clinic. The format of our production is very simple. We host world-class clinical experts in a variety of specialties of internal medicine and put forth important and high-impact clinical questions related to the practice of general medicine with impact for providers at all levels of medicine, including students, APPs, generalists, and seasoned veterans. Today's topic is high-value approach to blood products, red blood cells, plasma, and platelet. I am proud to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Moises Arone, a professor of medicine and pediatrics at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine at Case Western Reserve, also medical director for blood management, and a staff hospitalist at Cleveland Clinic. To top it off, he is also a master clinician educator in both the medicine and pediatric residency programs in Cleveland at Cleveland Clinic. Our resident expert today is none other than co-founding podcaster, Dr. Arjun Chatterjee, one of our fabulous PGY3 residents within the Cleveland Clinic Internal Medicine Residency Program. And today he is joining us from India. To our honored guests, please take a moment to say hi. Tell us a little about yourselves and start right in on the questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Wardrop and Dr. Chatterjee for the kind invitation to be here with you tonight. It is a true honor and a joy to be part of the outstanding educational podcast. Um, sure. Uh, well, first of all, um, I am a dad of two beautiful children. I have a 10-year-old boy and a nine-month-old girl, and it is a joy to, and to see them grow every day and learn from them, not just the joy for life, but also how to take quests and how to overcome them and how to be a much better person every single day. So I be been becoming a much better pediatrician since I became my father and now in my second version now nine months going into it has been a true blast so to me this is the reason for my life and anything else I just support uh, my quest to fatherhood and to create two better citizens for this world thank you Thank you, Dr. Wardrow, for having me, and thank you, Dr. Oron, for joining. It's always uh, fascinating that we are able to come together and do this. Yes, I am very grateful to be here today, obviously, with Dr. Oron and Dr. Chatterjee both. Uh, for for uh, Moises and I, uh, we've known each other a long time, work we've done together through ACP, work we've done together through the High Value Practice Academic Alliance. Uh, so it gives me great pleasure Um to ask this question to better educate our peers and learners about high value care and about blood products. So uh, for the first question, I was just gonna ask for, for those out there, uh, medical students, primary care providers, medicine residents, et cetera, how should we treat preoperative anemia and what is your cutoff for hemoglobin with regards to transfusions preoperatively? That is a very important question. Preoperative anemia, is a very uh, prevalent condition that has a very significantly postoperative morbidity and mortality associated with it. 
I should not suggest to proceed with elective surgery in patients with properly diagnosed and correctable anemia until the anemia has been appropriately evaluated and treated. Anemia is common. It presents in approximately one quarter to up to one third of patients undergoing elective surgery. Treatment of anemia not just improves the patient readiness for surgery, also aids in the management of comorbid conditions help to decrease the length of stay and readmission rates. Treatment modalities may include simple nutritional or hematinic supplementation, such as iron, B12, folate, zinc, as well as some change in medication, management of chronic inflammatory conditions or undiagnosed malignancy, or other intervention based on its etiology. The selection for transitions um, that have been um, recommended are a cutoff hemoglobin of 7 grams per deciliter for all hemodynamically stable hospitalized adult patients, including critically ill patients. Hemoglobin of 7.5 grams per deciliter for patients undergoing cardiac surgery. And hemoglobin of 8 grams per deciliter for those undergoing orthopedic surgery or those with pre-existing cardiovascular disease. This threshold does not apply in specific conditions like acute coronary syndrome, severe thrombocytopenia, or chronic transition-dependent anemia. It is also important to acknowledge that there is no restriction for a red blood cell use based on its storage life. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Ron. I just wanted to start off our podcast by presenting a case that I recently encountered during my internal medicine wards. So this was a 50-year-old male who was scheduled to undergo total colectomy for ulcerative colitis in November of 2023. The patient's hemoglobin was 9 gram per deciliter. The anesthesiologist had called me and asked me to order a unit of transfusion prior to the surgery, saying that the patient will need blood for optimal oxygen delivery during the surgery. But after I had listened to your grand rounds, we as a team disagreed based on that his hemoglobin was greater than 7 and the preload as well as his oxygenation status can be optimized during the surgery and no transfusion was required. My second question to you is, what are the risks of blood transfusion? So this is a very important question, and we have to consider this every time a blood transfusion is being entertained. Bloodborne infections such as HIV, hepatitis C, and hepatitis B occur at rates of approximately 1 in 1 million. Fatal hemolysis is also recorded in a very similar frequency. In a much more related frequency, we have transition-related acute lung injury, also known as trolley which has an incident of around 1 in 10,000, while transition-associated circulatory overload, as well as benign non-immunitic fever, are relatively more common, affecting approximately 1 in 100 cases. Awesome. Dr. Aron, could you guide us through the process of assessing and managing anemia in the perioperative setting? When should we be consulting gastroenterology for EGD slash colonoscopy for the evaluation of iron deficiency anemia? Sure, absolutely. The most important thing first is to understand if the patient has severe anemia that is actively symptomatic. If that's so, you have to stop 
and evaluate and optimize it. Now, if, you, if that is not the case, then you have to evaluate first the most common cause for anemia, which is actually iron deficiency. And you evaluate these by assessing the level of hematinics. The iron deficiency is defined as a transferrin saturation less than 20%, a ferritin less than 100 micrograms, or a reticulocyte hemoglobin content less than 30%. If that is present, then that will actually suggest the presence of iron deficiency, and iron replacement should be recommended. And at that time, referral for gastroenterology should be considered for evaluation of iron deficiency. If the levels are not that, and actually transferrin saturation is more than 20%, ferritin is more than 100 micrograms per liter, or reticulocyte hemoglobin content is more than 30%, then this is not iron deficiency, and we should evaluate for other hematinic like B12 or folate. And if that's documented as deficient, then replacement should be pursued, but also aiming to weigh in for the cause for the deficiency. So, to conclude, we have to think about consulting GI in the following situation. Iron deficiency as stated, but also the most recent American Gastroenterology Association or AGA guideline, they actually recommend a further lower ferritin level of 45 nan nanograms per ml. And they also recommend to do the workup with a bidirectional endoscopy in asymptomatic postmenopausal women as well as men with iron deficiency anemia. In the patient whose etiology for iron deficiency anemia has not been identified, they actually recommend to do an, a replacement, formal replacement of iron before pursuing further endoscopic workup with a capsule endoscopy. Thank you for that very uh, thorough overview of the process of assessing and managing anemia in the perioperative setting. When you do decide to replace iron. When I was in training, for instance, we only had IV preparations such as iron dextran. And so we very rarely went ahead and replaced iron unless it was an emergency via the IV route. But with so many different options today, would you recommend IV iron or oral replacement? Thank you for the question, Dr. Wardrop. Oral iron is readily available and is very absorbed. Uh, when you use it with alternate day dosing once a day, as it can actually decrease the release of hepcidin. However, for a lot of people, oral nylon can cause side effects like constipation. Nonetheless, if we have enough time to optimize anemia, oral iron is an outstanding choice. For example, if you have six months to optimize a patient before a hip replacement, you can use oral iron once a day, every other day, and you will have plenty of time to replace it. Nonetheless, in the perioperative setting, it's often a fast-paced setting. We don't have enough time to optimize. Therefore, parenteral choices like IV iron are preferred. IV iron is safe and is available in multiple formulations. Some of the side effects include, like the most common one, a fish vein reaction. The fish vein reaction is defined as a transient flushing or troncal myalgias. Myalgias, which are localized cutaneous manifestation. Moderate reactions that include nausea, abdominal cramping, dyspnea, tachycardia, and severe reaction that includes bronchospasm, 
laryngeal edema or shock. Now, the predicted risk of anaphylaxis is highest with iron dextrin in 80 to 100,000. And the lowest risk of anaphylaxis happened with iron sucrose. It has been proven that in patients who have fishing reaction or mild reaction, the IV iron infusion can be actually recommended at a lower rate and use of some premedication like antihistamine and acetaminophen or otherwise you'll change to a different type of iron preparation. However, it is not advised to use iron if you have had moderate or severe reactions. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Arnold, for sharing that. So um, the shift focus by presenting another is from the liver service. A 50-year-old male with hepatitis C cirrhosis, male score of 20, INR of 1.9, was admitted to our service with a fever. Upon examination, he had significant ascites, blood cultures were drawn, broad-spectrum antibiotics were initiated in the emergency room, and the plan was to investigate for SPP through paracentesis once he came to us on the floors. How many units of fresh frozen plasma would you order prior to the patient undergoing paracentesis, Dr. Oron? Well, first of all, this is a great question. First of all, we need to understand that the patient with cirrhosis is going to have a very balanced profile of both coagulation and fibrinolytic cascade as well as thrombotic cascade. And the INR is not going to be a reliable indicator of the coagulation status. For example, the patient is going to have elements that will be anticoagulant or actually will be as enhanced risk of bleeding, like thrombocytopenia, abnormal platelet function, the decreasing TPO, increasing prostocycline, decreasing coagulation factors, decreasing absorption of vitamin K, increasing TPA, etc. But there's also the balance thrombotic factor, like increasing foam bilirubin factor, decreasing the level of ADAM-DF13, increasing factor 8, decreasing the levels of protein C, protein S, and antithrombin 3, as well as decrease in plasminogen. So as you can see, at any given time, a patient with cirrhosis has risk for bleeding, but also has risk for thrombosis. So just getting plasma based on the diagnosis of cirrhosis can actually shift the whole coagulation fibrinolytic cascade toward the prothrombotic uh, side. Now, when we look at INR, the value of INR, we have to understand how it correlates with the percentage of coagulation factors. Any time that your INR is less than 2.0, most your coagulation factors will be above 30%, which is the sound of normal hemostasis. So whenever, whenever you have an IDNR of 1.8 and less, you have for sure most of your coagulation factors above 30%. So as stated, an IDNR less than 2.0 has most of the coagulation factors above 30%, the percentage of abnormal hemostasis increases when your INR goes beyond 2.1, where some of your coagulation factor will be less than 30%. And pretty much most of your coagulation factor will be less than 30% when your INR for sure is above 2.5 and 3. This is why in patients with mechanical mitral valve, you prefer to have an INR above 2.5. 
because you ensure that most of the coagulation factor will be below 30%. So in regard with the number of FFPs, we have to understand that the volume that is required to a supplement, a meaningful replacement of coagulation factor is 10 to 20 mLs per kilogram of ideal body weight. The dose of FFP is volume dependent. If you have a patient who is 60 kilos, that will be 600 mLs to 900 mLs. So this, this can be uh, from two up to three units of plasma. So each unit of plasma has 250 mLs. So the volume can be associated with risk of taco with consequent pulmonary edema. Therefore, we have to individualize the treatment and preferably consider choices like vitamin K or four-factor protromin complex concentrate. If the patient is taking a um, vitamin K antagonist like warfarin and the patient is not bleeding, then you could just withhold the warfarins and wait. Treat the patient, don't treat the numbers. FFPs should not be used in the very case that you have just provided. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. But what about warfarin-associated bleeding? We can use FFP to reverse warfarin, right, Dr. Aron? Uh, no, Arjun. Uh, most warfarin-associated bleeding can be reversed with vitamin K. Uh, and you can use safely intravenous or subcutaneous vitamin K 5 to 10 milligrams. First of all, when you use warfarin, the liver is not stopping synthesizing coagulation factors. These are already synthesized and they just need a final conversion step, the final carboxylation step, which is blocked by warfarin. So when you give the vitamin K, you allow that final carboxylation and render all the factors active. Now, if the patient is actively bleeding and, and you need immediate correction, Four-factor protromin complex concentrate can be utilized as they will correct INR at a way faster rate, just a matter of a few hours as compared with FFPs. FFPs would be reserved for serious bleeding or emergency surgery when there is no access to four-factor protromin complex concentrates. That's a fascinating uh, set of circumstances. And thank you for the clarification. Another topic that comes up often in the pre-op setting is with regards to pre-op INR and pre-op platelet levels. What are your recommendations for pre-op INRs and platelet levels for elective surgeries? So at our institution for blood management, we recommend the guideline or from the Society for Interventional Radiology, and they recommend for the blood risk procedure in non-liver disease patients, the guidelines recommend to not check or no need to check PT and INR or CVC. However, if it has been checked, an INR less than a range of two to three and platelets more than 20,000, some of the examples include like a catheter chip, like an aflostomy, Chain. Well, we have like some uh, venous intervention, like the placement of a central line. We're going to play a dialysis, like a lumbar puncture, the IVC filter, like a percutaneous IVC filter placement, the placement of a percutaneous chest tube, 
It paracentis, Now, high-risk procedures, those it would recommend much more conservative value, like a target INR less than 1.5 to 1.8, place less more than 50,000. Some of the examples include, like, solid organ ablation, when you are going to have an arterial axle with a catheter larger than 7 frames, any biliary intervention, when there's some catheter-directed thrombolysis, deep abscess drain, like a long abscess, retroperitoneal abscess, deep organ biopsies, like retroperitoneal biopsies, gastrostomy placement, portal vein intervention, or a spinal intervention or, or a spinal or epidural tap with a risk of spinal epidural bleeding, tips, nephrostomy tube, etc. In patients who have liver disease or cirrhosis, they would recommend for low-risk procedure to use a target plate more than 20,000 and fibrinogen more than 100. They don't care about INR level. But if you are going to have a high-risk procedure, then the target INR should be less than 2.5, platelet more than 20, and fibrinogen more than 100. I want to emphasize here that for the high-risk procedure, the target INR is less than 2.5 because, again, remember that the INR in the patient with cirrhosis is not going to be the sole indicator of the risk of bleeding as you also have a risk of thrombosis that is associated. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Oron. I would like to move on and present another case from my ICU rotation. This was a 35-year-old male with prolonged hospitalization after trauma, requiring an ICU admission and also intermittent hemodialysis. He developed a new febrile episode and had mental status changes with meningismus. His platelet count was 25K. An IR-guided lumbar puncture was requested. So, prior to this procedure being done, at what level shall his platelets be risen? And then the other question which I have for you are, what are the challenges and risks associated with platelet transfusions? Well, uh, first of all, um, we need to understand that platelets are fascinating cells. And they are the core cell that is, in effect, in inflammation. So we need to understand some of the challenges associated with transfusion platelets. Number one, they're very expensive and they have very short supplies. They are stored at room temperature with increased risk of bacterial contamination. Often, platelets are the blood product that is not readily available in most blood veins. As I have stated you, it's a central cell in inflammation, so it causes the majority of transition reaction, and it also carries a high risk of alloimmunization. Now, there's also some risk with the platelet transition. Febrile reaction and allergic response is very common. It's just up to one per 50 patients. Bacterial sepsis can happen in up to one to 75,000 patients. Um, the risk of trally from all plasma containing blood product can be up to one in 10,000 patients. So the risk of transition associated with platelet is not negligible. What are the guidelines for platelet transfusion that you follow? Sure. No, the guidelines for platelet transfusion we have the uh, American Association of Bank, we have the British Society of Hematology. The guideline that they recommend is to, most of them are actually very similar, is to use a cutoff value of 10,000 in patients that have risk for spontaneous bleeding, a value of 20,000, so, 20, so less than 20,000 indicate transition platelets for a patient that a central vein venous catheter is going to be placed. 
a value of less than 50,000 for a lumbar puncture, although the British guidelines recommend less than 40,000, a value of less than 50,000 for any major elective surgery, and a value of less than 100,000 for a patient undergoing neurosurgery and ophthalmology. So in the case that Arjun has shared, the patient does not need any more platelets before undergoing a lumbar puncture, as the platelets are already 20,000, and the patient is undergoing an interventional radiology-related procedure, which does not require additional platelet transition. Nonetheless, if that lumbar puncture would happen at the bedside with no imaging that is uh, utilized to help guide the procedure, then I probably would prefer the British guideline and I would aim a level of 40,000. And transition can be given just within one hour of the procedure in order to be able to achieve a correction of 20 to 30,000 of platelets, which is how much you correct it, which uh, one unit of platelets that have often five concentrates of platelets or one unit by epheresis. What are the contraindications to platelet transfusion? Well, the absolute contraindication include the heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and immune thrombocytopenic purpura. Relative contraindication include disseminated intravascular coagulation and thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. And can you mention about any alternatives to platelet transfusions that are available? Sure, absolutely. Similar to anemia. For patients with anemia, we can aim to provide iron replacement, B12 supplementation. Well, in places that we can do different things. If the patient has uremia, based on dialysis, and there is no immediate places available, we can use DDAVP. DDAVP will actually enhance the release of one milligram factor. The patient has sepsis, well, which we treat the sepsis, provide uh, antibiotic to decrease inflammation and enhance endothelial function. In the patient who has a significant bleeding risk, for instance, treating ITP, uh, the patient with uh, with liver disease who has autoimmune liver disease or hepatitis C, uh, untreated hepatitis C, well, you can treat them the same as you would treat ITP. You could use IVIG. You can also use thrombopoietin analogs like have a thrombopag, a thrombopag, romiploskin, um, can be used. And also, uh, optimizing some other element of the uh, um, coagulation cascade. I mean, can replace uh, some recombinant clotting factors. There's just uh, different, like recombinant factor 15, recombinant factor A. And some patients also decrease the risk of fibrinolysis with using antifibrinolytic, like epsilon aminocaproid, acid or tranexamic acid, etc. Awesome. One of the things which we use in the ICU nowadays is thromboelastrography. Can you briefly touch upon TEG or Rotem? Sure. Uh, TEG or Rotem are also called the viscoelastic testing. And um, this is a rather recent uh, testing that has been used to understand the active state of the coagulation cascade as well as fibrinolysis. So the thromboelastography shows the interaction of platelets with the coagulation cascade, like aggregation, clot strengthening, fibrin cross-linking, and fibrinolysis. So what we do is that we see a, a, a geometric shape 
that is going to explain either the coagulation uh, state or fibrinolysis. And it's going to have different indexes or units like R time. It's going to have the K time, the maximum amplitude, alpha angle. And based on the difference of this value, it will indicate how to correct coagulation. For example, if you have an increased R time, you would need to actually provide plasma. You have a decreased alpha angle, we tell you that you have the fibrin. fibrin. You have a decreased amplitude, we tell you that you have enough platelet, and platelet transition would be indicated, or DDADP as well. Dr. Rowan, that was a fantastic overview. And Dr. Chatterjee, those were fantastic and illustrative cases. What are your final take-home points, Dr. Rowan, for all those generalists, primary care physicians, hospitalists, and students and residents who want uh, to take a high-value approach to blood product use, including red blood cells, plasma, and platelets. Well, first of all, uh, let me express my gratitude to you and to Dr. Chatterjee for the invitation to be here with you. So, first of all, please treat the patient, don't treat the number. Number two, for anemia, anemia is not normal. Anemia is, is not a disease either. Anemia is a manifestation of an underlying process. Please be curious and work it up. Why is the patient anemic? Is the patient having a nut nutritional deficiency? Then why is the nutritional deficiency happen? Is there malabsorption? Is there a specific dietary intake? Is there a concomitant medication that's being used? What's happening? Is the patient ble bleeding? Is they losing blood? Aim to identify and correct the cause before actually your transfusion. Number three. I will aim for a conservative value. Do not transfuse patients whose hemoglobin is more than 7 grams and they are hemodynamically stable. Number four, for plasma, do not give plasma just for the sake of correcting INR. You can use vitamin K, you can use four-factor protein complex concentrate, you can use time and, and, and hold on the warfarin. But again, if your INR is less than 1.8, you are not going to make any meaningful correction of coagulation factors if you are going to transfuse plasma, please use a weight-based dosing. So you use 10 to 20 ml per kilogram of ideal body weight to provide plasmatization. And for platelets, just make sure that you understand that platelets are biologically active and they have the highest risk of transitional reaction. So if you are aiming to use platelets, remember that one concentrate of platelet that has five to six units, it rises your platelet count about 20 to 30,000. So to use it within one hour before the procedure in order to optimize the platelet number. Thank you. Well, on behalf of the team, thank you to our senior clinical expert, Dr. Arone, for your expertise, wisdom, and insights. Additionally, I want to sincerely thank Dr. Arjun Chatterjee, who is our resident content expert today and developed and vetted this content for today's episode with Dr. Arone. Team, I certainly enjoyed this. It was an exquisite overview of the topic, and I imagine that many of our listeners will find this information illuminating and absolutely essential to their practice. Thank you also to the Cleveland Clinic Education Institute for their educational support of this project. Until next time, Happy New Year. Please enjoy this and future podcasts during your next Medicine Grand Rounders.